Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. She glanced at Roger and smiled. Here was the Vienna she'd miss the most, the one where you could walk into a cafe in broad daylight and listen to live music. A city that could add colour to every moment of your day and night. Roger guided her to a table near the musicians, pulled out a chair and waited for her to sit down. It wasn't until he took the seat across from her that she saw how his hand shook. When he caught her stare, he took a cigarette from his case and hastily lit it. He gestured towards one of the violinists, cigarette balanced between his fingers. That, ma chérie, is the main reason I have brought you here. In case you are wondering, Harry happens to be one of the finest violinists in Vienna, in all of Austria, in fact. Her eyes came to rest on a man in his mid-thirties, with black wavy hair that grazed the collar of his white dinner shirt and fell across his face, half hiding it as his head swayed with the music. Then he abruptly looked up and his dark eyes caught sight of Roger, his mouth broadening into a smile. His forehead was smooth above thick brows, a prominent nose and full crimson lips. Esther couldn't help but stare, not only because she didn't recognise this striking man, despite having recently been ingrained in the music community, playing in various ensembles and orchestras, but also because of the warmth his expression radiated. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Caroline Beecham is a novelist, writer and producer. She's the author of three books, Maggie's Kitchen, Eleanor's Secret and Finding Edie. Today I'm talking to Caroline Beecham about her latest novel, Esther's Children. Caroline Beecham, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Hi Greg, thanks a lot for having me. Esther's Children is based on the life of a real person. Who was Esther Simpson? Well, Esther Simpson um, worked for an organisation called Society for the Protection of Science and Learning in the 1930s and 1940s. It was a British organisation that um, helped rescue academic refugees from from Europe, basically when fascism was uh, taking hold. I first came across um, Esther when I was reading an article about the organisation CARA, which is called Council for At-Risk Academics which exists still today, and it's still carrying on that work that that she did in the early 1930s and 40s. Um, I was surprised I hadn't heard so much about her or the organisation. There were a few articles in the archives, and a lot seemed to be known about the men who were um, running the organisation, but there was little about this woman who worked behind the scenes, tirelessly writing hundreds of thousands of letters to try and find places in British institutions and universities for these scholars and these scientists who were affected by um, what was going on in mainland Europe. And as is often happens and and as now as well, it's the intellectuals that are persecuted and they were the ones that needed to flee the countries. And Esther just seemed such a, a remarkable figure and the work that she did really, I found quite extraordinary that I just, thought I need to find out more about this woman and um, and I did. And what was missing in the documentation about Esther's life? 
there's not an awful lot about her personally. Um, there's a lot about her work and professional life, but very little about um, her. Um, apart from her obvious achievements in music, she was an incredible musician and she saw music as her passport to the world. And she did, she traveled a lot. She went to Vienna a lot and she played in ensembles and was a very accomplished musician. Um, but there was very little about her personal life. And I just felt this woman had dedicated her life to helping others. And she probably had very little time for her personal life. Um, well, it wasn't recorded anyway. And I decided that I wanted to tell her story and give her the love life that she didn't have time for and the romance that I imagined. Um, there was a real meeting of the minds with her and a lot of the, um, the scientists that she helped. A lot of the refugees she befriended and stayed in touch with for years. Um, and I, could, I really got the sense from the research that I did that, you know, intellectually she was, um, you know, it was such a stimulating environment for her to be in. And I thought, well, any relationship that she's going to have is going to be with one of these men. Um, and of course, that's where the tensions come about because if she falls in love with someone, and she needs to rescue them. What if she can't? Um, what if she isn't able to get them the place that they need? Because the scholars had to get a grant at a university or an institution to be able to come over. And if she couldn't secure that for them, then there's, there's no way they could come. Um, and I thought that that would be quite a compelling story. And you've called this book Esther's Children. But who were Esther's children? Esther's children were all the scientists and academics that she helped rescue from Germany, Austria and other countries that were um, being affected by the growing fascism in Europe. Um, she called them her children and there's a wonderful quote actually. She actually said herself in 1940, I faced one or two anxious moments last week. One naturally has something to worry about when one has a family of 600. And that's how she felt, these, these, uh, these people that um, they managed to rescue. She had written letters for them. She'd often helped settle them and their families in Britain. Um, you know, it was everything from opening bank accounts to helping them find accommodation, to putting them in touch with other scholars, to helping them settle. So it was, you know, it was an incredibly long process um, the grant only lasted for two years. So during that time, they had to then try and stand on their own two feet and secure employment. Or in some cases, they could get an extension. But she, she got to know these people very well. And you can imagine at the most sort of tense and traumatic time of your life, um, you have this wonderful woman who is so giving and kind. That was the basis of her friendship with them. And you know, as I said, she had, she didn't have a partner or a family that, that's recorded. That's not in the um, any of the documentation that I went through. Attacks on truth and, and questioning knowledge and research in science and academia. Uh, these are challenges that still persist today. Truth and critical thinking are some of the casualties of war, along with the people who pursue it. Does the work that Esther took part in continue today and through what organisations? Esther actually carried on working for the organisation until she retired. Many of the refugees that she helped got together 
with donations and gave her the money to buy a flat in 1966 to show their gratitude. Um, now she turned one of the bedrooms into the office so she could continue with the work. Now that's, that society still um, is carrying out that work today, but it's known as the Council for At-Risk Academics. Unfortunately, um, the work continues through how persecuted academics escape other regimes. Um, and, you know, it's quite striking that we're talking about something which is from the 1940s, which sadly is going, is had to continue on and thinking about what's happening now with Ukraine. Yeah, it's really important work. And if we can turn now from the real to the fictional, what approach did you take uh, in turning Esther Simpson, the person, into Esther Simpson, the character in your book? Turning Esther Simpson into a fictional character um, took me a little bit of time because I think I was quite overwhelmed by her as a real person and because of the work that she did. It was quite an extraordinary story and um, I just felt that I wanted to include a lot of it. I wanted to show, the story is really a, a story about the tough decisions that we make. I mean, it really is a story of her sacrifice and I wanted this to um, play out within her fictional life. I wanted to give her the relationship. I wanted to show the sacrifices um, they had to make in rescuing Harry, who is the man that she falls in love with, and also the, the decision that they have to both make. It's almost as if in Esther's Children, it's got its own soundtrack playing in the background. Harry's a violinist and Esther herself is a musician, and it's the music of Brahms and Beethoven, Bruckner and Schubert. And for me, it's a, a kind of a beauty in a, a sea of despair that you relate. Is that music part of your life too? It was a real pleasure and, um, in fact, a privilege to get to learn more about it and appreciate it um, when I was writing this book um, because it was such an important part of Esther's character and who she was. I felt that I really needed to um, understand where that came from. So it was during lockdown, so it was really hard to hear any kind of concerts at all. But um, I managed to go um, to the Sydney Symphony Orchestra's um, rehearsals. I have a good friend, um, Rosemary Curtin, who is one of the um, members of the orchestra. So I'm really grateful to her because she was also able to give me research and help me understand the mind and process of a musician. That was invaluable. Because it was such a big part of Esther's life, I felt that it would be really nice to include it in the novel. And so um, there's a Spotify um, QR code in the back so that readers can read the book and they can listen to the music and, um, you know, really enter Esther's world and, you know, the world of Vienna and London during this time. Is there any particular piece of music you think that says everything possible about this book? Schubert's string quintet in C major is a beautiful piece of music and, and one of Esther's favourites. Um, it's stunning to listen to and you can imagine her playing it. There's also a chapter in the book when she goes with other um, musicians and plays at one of the aerodromes around Cambridge. And it's something that she actually did when she was working for the organisation. She was 
spending all her night writing these letters to try and help get the uh, refugees out of the internment camps because not only did Esther rescue them once from Europe, but she had to rescue them again because in 1940, all the um, European refugees were interned as enemy aliens. So she had an incredibly busy demanding life, but she still had time to play music and go to the um, aerodrome and play for the soldiers there. The Elga String Quartet in E minor, you can imagine it's such a haunting piece of music. And you can imagine what it was like for servicemen to listen and have that sort of brief moment of beauty to think with everything that was going on in the world. Vienna, August 1937. The linden trees along the Ringstrasse were beginning to turn their lime green leaves transforming to a flaxen yellow, the cream-hued spring flowers a faded memory, together with the perfumed night air. Esther thought they still looked beautiful, a lush frame through which to view the exuberant Rococo and neoclassical buildings that stood behind them. It had been nearly 18 months since she'd walked through her favourite city, and over 500 days since she had last seen Harry. She had been supposed to meet him after his rehearsal, but had grown too fidgety waiting in her room, and so she'd sent a message to let him know she would wait for him outside the Musikverein. But once she reached the concert building and heard the rising pitch of the violins reverberate around the Golden Hall, she couldn't resist making her way inside, just as they began to tremolo before the horn signalled the beginning of the waltz. I've only got one more question for you, and that's about Vienna. While Esther's Children is a, about a dark period in 20th century history, it's also a story set in the beautiful city of Vienna with its great tradition of music and architecture. What's your own relationship with Vienna? I went to Vienna years ago when I was backpacking um, with a friend from university, Geraldine Horn, who has in fact also helped me with the novel and the research because she's um, a senior lecturer in German at um, UCL. So again, really, really valuable because I wasn't able to travel there again. So I had to rely on my memory of Vienna, which was a, such a stunning city to visit. And you can imagine, um, I mean, the charm and just the scale of, of what's achieved and the mines. And it was at a time in history where there was so much advancement within the science and arts and music and all the intellectuals well most of the intellectuals also were musicians which um was, you know was something else that Esther found as well um but Vienna as a place I think was just stunning well it's a wonderful city full of wonderful music and your book taps right into all of those themes so Caroline Beecham thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast thanks for having me Greg I've been talking to Caroline Beecham about her latest book, Esther's Children. It's published by Alan and Unwin, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.